0: You might be interested that one of the most popular American players in Japan is Ken Griffey Jr.
1: The innocent defendants who become convicted are usually convicted in the court of public opinion by inflammatory media before they ever get to trial.
2: That's Former Seattle Mariners CEO John Ellis and Mike Heavey, former state legislator, judge, and now fully engaged in a nonprofit that began in 2013 called Judges for Justice. Welcome to this edition of Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. I had this interview with John Ellis in between the time the Seattle Mariners were playing in the kingdom and their move to Safeco Field, which makes this interview over 20 years old. What were the Mariners facing at that time? Well, a lot of change, moving from one stadium to the next. We know that the Mariners are going through major changes now, but much greater at that period of time. As a matter of fact, there was a high probability that the Mariners were going to be moving to Tampa around that time, but people like John Ellis and many others stepped up to save the team. And when I say many others, we can't forget about former Mayor Norm Rice and, of course, former U.S. Senator Slade Gordon. Mike Heavey, former state senator from West Seattle and King County Superior Court judge, has been leading an effort to identify wrongful convictions that leave innocent people in prison and sometimes executed for a crime they did not commit. How does this happen? Mr. Heavey will shed some light on that. I asked Stephen Diltz, founder and CEO of Pyramid Staging and Events, if, after reading my book, Is Self-Employment for You?, was there anything that he found particularly beneficial to him? His answer on today's show.
3: Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is Self-Employment for You?, Pre-flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist.
4: I guess there were two things that jumped out at me from the book. And as a caveat, one of them was that you really, really emphasized to think long and hard before you add a business partner. And I think I've learned in a couple different ways from experience that that is so incredibly right. It may be the most single most important piece of advice that you get from the book. Odds are you don't need to split all the income with somebody else. Odds are that relationships change and transform, and now you'll be stuck in a relationship that somebody owns half of your company, and maybe they don't contribute the same way. All these little things you you can't predict where it goes, but have some confidence, have faith in yourself, and you know succeed or fail on your own merits. It doesn't have to be a single business partner, and Lord forbid, it certainly doesn't need to be a collective of three or four or five people. There, there's some value to owning 100% of what you're doing and succeeding or failing on your own merits.
2: That's Stephen Diltz, founder of Pyramid Staging and Events.
4: Our guest this morning on U.S. West Profiles of Experience is Mr. John Ellis, Chief Executive Officer of the Seattle Mariners for the past six years. Mr. Ellis is a lifelong resident of the Puget Sound region and has made significant contributions in enhancing the quality of life in this region. Mr. Ellis, uh, could you tell us do you think uh, the major hurdles have been overcome in terms of future baseball in Seattle?
0: Who knows what the next one will be but we've certainly come a very long way and I, I think the stadium hurdles are essentially over We have an appeal to go through, and we have a stadium to build, but I think most of the the big ones are gone. Do you think
4: uh, the Seattle Mariners, what do you think about the ball team and and what its prospects are for this year?
0: Well, everybody's optimistic in the spring, and and we're as optimistic as anyone. I think the prospects are are super. Uh, What we need to do is keep them away from the doctor. Last year, you know, we started out with a whale of a team and had a lot of people hurt. If we could stay well, we should definitely be a contender.
4: What do you think, in general, the state of Major League Baseball is in now, on the big scope, across the country, where it's headed? Where do you see, like, I guess the question would be Major League Baseball in five years from now, maybe ten years from now?
0: Yeah, I think it's on its way back, pretty clearly. The the strike really hurt. Uh, it hurt with the fans. It hurt with relationships between players and teams. It, it was a mess. And last year was kind of uh, the first year of rebirth The uh, change of the championship season has really helped the additional playoffs. And now I just sense enthusiasm throughout the country. I think you're going to see the game bigger and better than ever. And and the other piece is that baseball is now going to reach out and try to grow internationally as well. And that's important.
4: How about Seattle uh, making headroads into Japan? I know we have, but let's say television and things and, and actually the prospects of going there next year and playing some games.
0: Yeah, remember, Japan has its own very good league. So it's not as if we would go in and superimpose ourselves on them. Uh, but uh, we're looking at working relationships with Japanese baseball teams, for example. You might be interested that one of the most popular American players in Japan is Ken Griffey Jr. So we, we feel we have an affinity, and, and we're going to certainly work at that.
4: John Ellis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
2: You noticed during the interview with John Ellis that the name Ken Griffey Jr. was mentioned as the star of Baseball in Japan, meaning that Ichiro, as a baseball player, was an unknown individual to Seattle. But in a couple of years, that was about to change. My guest is Mike Heavey, a decorated Vietnam veteran, former Washington State Senator and retired King County Superior Court judge. In 2013, he helped form an organization called Judges for Justice, which identifies wrongful convictions that leave innocent people imprisoned. I asked him how he personally got interested in forming Judges for
1: Justice. Idea of judges for justice came out of my experience in the Amanda Knox case, which was uh, she was a neighbor girl of ours in West Seattle, who was uh, arrested, tried, and convicted in Italy. Uh, I gave, became involved in that just as a uh, almost an observer, but uh, I and some other parents of Seattle Prep kids got together and we formed a citizens group called Friends of Amanda. And out of that, I saw that we in this country have our wrongful convictions, too. In fact, some of ours might be a lot worse than the Amanda Knox case. And out of that came a study for me of how wrongful convictions happen, how to recognize them. And when I retired from the King County Superior Court bench in January 2013, I and some other people founded Judges for Justice to try to, uh, essentially to exonerate innocent people usually very uh, heinous crimes.
2: Did you have any particular feeling one way or the other prior to this?
1: I think, I've, I've mentioned this to other attorneys and judges, but I think a lot of, when I was in law school I always uh, had this, I guess I don't like the word fantasy, but I guess that's the right word that I would someday be assigned a case or get a case where everybody thought that the person was guilty, but I would prove to to the uh, jury that uh, not only were they not guilty, but that they were innocent. And uh, the problem with that is I was never <laughs> quite, I would never, uh, when you're an attorney, you rarely get assigned a case where a, a, a person is innocent. Uh, not rarely, but not that often, and certainly not. And I certainly didn't have the abilities to take on a high-profile murder case, and uh, so that that never happened to me. Uh, but uh, that the thought was there, and I saw this judges for justice as a way not to represent the person. We do not represent defendants, but to change the court of public opinion. Because the court of public opinion is what really, what is what really leads the way in these wrongful convictions. The people are usually, the innocent defendants who become convicted are usually convicted in the court of public opinion by inflammatory media before they ever get to trial.
2: If that's the case, how do you control that, or how do you educate people that? Uh I guess this needs to stop, or the meeting needs to be more fair?
1: I don't know. What we work on mainly is undoing them, you know, 15, 20 years later, when the wrongful conviction climate, kind of almost a, a subconscious hysteria demanding a conviction, settles down a little bit. You know, Amanda was arrested in 2007. It wasn't until 2015 that the Italian Supreme Court said there they have three verdicts in Italy, guilty, not guilty, and innocent. They didn't commit the crime. And Amanda and her co-defendant, Raffaele Selecchito, were declared innocent. They didn't do the crime by uh, the Italian Supreme Court in April of 2015. Uh, by the time the, the uh, fear levels had subsided you could come back and see there's absolutely no evidence the tragedy is that a lot of people still think Amanda Knox killed her roommate and that is that is such a sad part about this most of us go through life without people thinking about us like that but a lot of people or people think that she's somehow uh, not all there she's a She's the girl next door. She is a sweetheart of a young lady. And uh, these, these impressions that she could have possibly killed her roommate or that she's somewhere way off the deep end are just totally false. And it's a shame she has to live with that the rest of her life.
2: I had an interview with Dave Marriott about a year and a half ago on this subject, and the same thing he was talking about. but And he did mention how the media convicted her before she even got to trial. And one of the ways he turned around, he felt it turned around, is that he went to the national media and went to the ABCs and people who could spend time investigating this. And once they did, they started turning around themselves and going, wait a minute, she probably is innocent. And that kind of filled into the public airwaves after that. And from my own view... I have to say in the beginning that I thought she was guilty. By the time it came to the second round, I wasn't paying that much attention to it, but I was casual. And I think before that second verdict came, but she was but it was overturned. I, at that point, had arrived going, you know, I think she's innocent. But it's an interesting point that you mentioned. In some ways, she'll be forever, in the minds of a lot of people, guilty. What Dave Marriott said was that it could have been quirky here. What was she doing there? But... There was no evidence that she did
1: this. There's absolutely no evidence. The theory of the prosecution is that two young college lovebirds are spending a night together. That's never happened before. They get up in the middle of the night. They walk 10 minutes across town. They take a big kitchen knife with them. They hook up with a local drifter they don't know, a kid that was a high school dropout, an immigrant from Africa, go inside to Amanda's house, sexually assault and murder her roommate. That's never happened in the annals of crime, and it didn't happen then. But that's the theory of the prosecution. The drifter, the high school dropout DNA was inside of the victim and all over her body and clothes. Amanda had nothing to do with that. And it's just a shame that the hysteria. There's one person that was responsible for this, in my opinion. It was Monica Napoleone. She's the chief of detectives. And she ran everything, and she had a thing. She was absolutely convinced that Amanda had some responsibility. So it's very sad how one person, in a way, can feed the hysteria and feed the press over and over false information that, if true, you'd think, oh, well, maybe she was guilty. You know, early on, one of the rumors was she was, uh, the the director clearly uh, guilty was Rudy Guadet. His uh, DNA was matched early on. And he was arrested within a month after the crime. Uh, and one of the rumors that went out is uh, that witnesses saw Amanda Knox and Rudy washing clothes the next morning in a local laundromat. Never happened, but it's sort of the kind of lie, falsehood, that you would think, oh, if true, that's that would indicate guilt or point in that direction, but those were, I counted at one point, 13 lies that never, never happened that were put out, I believe, by that chief of detectives to poison public opinion and uh, against Amanda. By the time Amanda went to trial, she was literally not only the most well-known woman in Italy, she beat out in a, a poll... She beat out the French president's wife, who was an Italian model, and it turned up. Who knows her? And the feeling was not good towards Amanda. There was a deep, deep seated hatred for her. She was called Luciferina, the uh, female devil in uh, Italy. And it was all because of the stuff that this chief of detectives pushed out there that was lie after lie.
2: How's Amanda doing now?
1: She's doing really well. I mean, I don't talk to her that often. Or, uh, every once in a while we change emails. Uh, she's getting married, and uh, uh, she writes a uh, uh, column for weekly newspapers. The West Seattle Herald, right? One of them is West Seattle Herald, yeah. Okay. So she's doing really well. well she does public speaking uh, uh, around the country on her case and that sort of thing.
2: Well, congratulations to you well, for pursuing this. <laughs> well, and then Dave Marriott who took, a, took this case up. So shifting into other things, this is what really got you interested in, let's say the death penalty and, and maybe the injustice of it all. And you have a case now that you're in the midst of and it's in Hawaii. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yes, our, our, our primary focus now is a case in Hawaii And like the, it's interesting, and three years ago it was in Idaho, uh, and the Italy case, the Idaho case, and the Y case all have a very common thread to them. Uh, One, the DNA, the male DNA found on the victims doesn't match the police suspects and the people that were convicted.
2: Can I just stop right there and just, I want to hear more about that, but... How is it possible that people trust DNA, law enforcement agencies, prosecutors, judges, and then you're saying that they don't match? How can they be convicted then?
1: That's a very difficult question to answer in a short period of time. But let me just say, what happens from human beings is that we form what is called, uh, we subconscious, it's a subconscious driving force called confirmation bias. And I'm just, it's not an easy concept, but let me give you, uh, uh, the definition says that confirmation bias, when human beings have a problem and they come to a solution, they subconsciously form a bias for their solution. For example, so they look for facts or evidence that would confirm their bias Confirmation bias. They reject facts that are inconsistent with their bias, no matter how probative. Now, you had a problem. You needed transportation. You bought the car you're driving today. And you had a problem, with transportation, your solution was your car. Now, wherever you drive around Seattle, you see your car make, model, and you do not see all those other cars are out there. But you're subconsciously confirming your bias, your decision, your answer to your transportation problem through that subconsciously. And that's what happens among jurors, judges, attorneys, police officers, when they suddenly are told that a man Knox confessed or that so-and-so confessed. That confession even when it's shown good examples is probably false, uh, Become so powerful that they reject things like, oh, gee, the defendant doesn't match the bite mark on the victim's breast. Oh, the defendant doesn't match the DNA uh, that was left by the perpetrator. Oh, the defendant doesn't match... The description of two eyewitnesses who saw a man. Oh, so you ignore all the indicators that would tell you that this person is innocent and you are driven. And what happens to the prosecution and among the public is a attitude of we know he's guilty. I don't care what we got to do, but we're going to get a conviction and make the community safe. And that, whether it was Amanda Knox or Chris Tapp in Idaho or the three defendants in Hawaii, Frank Pauline, Ian Schweitzer, and Sean Schweitzer, even though all that evidence said that they weren't, it was this confirmation bias that drove everything. Now, how do you get into a state of confirmation bias? What happens is a shocking crime. A shocking crime hits us all in the stomach. The kidnapping sexual assault and murder of a pretty young female. That really hits us, every single one of us. That is so deviant, we go, what in the heck? When two guys are in a bar fight, we say, and one shoots the other one, we go, well, I don't hang out in bars and da da da. And the rest of the community is not affected. But when you have these kind of shocking crimes, it starts fear in everybody. It starts fear in uh, the uh, community, transfers to the police. The fear when, it, uh, when the suspect isn't arrested within a short period of time, a suspect, then there is a pressure on law enforcement, prosecutors and police. And that pressure turns into essentially uh, tunnel vision, which is also called confirmation bias. And there becomes an attitude of get a conviction at all costs. And then they employ what we call the, uh, the five tools of uh, noble cause corruption. So the tunnel vision confirmation bias leads to what's called noble cause corruption. And noble cause corruption is police, all of us are on a noble cause. We want to get the bad guy locked up, make the community safe. But it gets corrupted.
2: That's Mike Heavey, founder of Judges for Justice. Now there's a case in Hawaii that Mr. Heavey referred to, and you can find out more about this case by visiting judgesforjustice.org That's judgesforjustice.org. You can watch an hour-long documentary on who killed Dana Ireland. I'm going to broadcast in a future show some of the details that he talked about in that case. But again, you can get a jump on that by going to judgesforjustice.org. I have been against the death penalty as long as I can remember. And really the main reason I have been against the death penalty is because it is not applied equally. In 99.9% of the cases, the person who's in jail or the person who was executed is someone who just basically doesn't have a lot of money. So I always kind of felt up to a point, applied equally, then I would take another look at it. But then I found out about how many wrongful convictions there are and how many people on death row have been wrongly convicted. And it's not just a few here and there. It is quite sizable. And I really started paying attention when Governor George Ryan of Illinois suspended the death penalty for like 160 death row inmates because what he uncovered was an incredible amount of corruption and also wrongful convictions. But again, if you're going to have the death penalty, you have to be right in this, and there is so much that is wrong.
3: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz that's voicesofexperience.com the higher you score on the quiz the higher your prospects for success one more time visit voicesofexperience.com all one word
2: That's all the time we have for this edition of Voices of Experience. I would like to thank John Ellis from an interview from over 20 years ago, Mike Heavey and Stephen Diltz for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. If you want to listen to any show for the last year and a half, Google KKNW, then click on to archives. At the bottom of the page, click on to Voices of Experience and you have arrived at the right place. You can listen to past interviews that include former host of NPR's All Things Considered, Robert Siegel, another couple of shows I did on homelessness in 2018, which included a visit to the Bread of Life mission in Seattle's Pioneer Square, also an interview with Chicken Soup for the Soul author and entrepreneur Mark Victor Hansen. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. If you'd like to talk about anything as it relates to the show, you can call me at 206- or if you'd like to leave a message and have it played on the show, call 425-653-1166. Leave an opinion of something we talked about today. If you agree or disagree, have at it. That phone number, again, is 425-653-1166. Have a great rest of the week.